0: An investor's investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists. To see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways we're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing today on outside in we're pleased to welcome our guest brandon Rees. brandon is the deputy director of corporations and capital markets the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, better known as the AFL-CIO. It's America's leading labor organization, representing some 12.5 million workers. Brandon focuses on those workers' capital, particularly on their pension savings. He's been doing that for more than 25 years and is an astute observer and player in the investing world and the capital markets. He's a member of the Council of Institutional Investors U.S. Asset Owners Advisory Council, serves on the governing board of Fartland Capital Strategies and the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibilities Advancing Worker Justice Program. I served with Brandon on the Standing Advisory Committee for the U.S.'s Audit Regulator. I can affirm that Brandon is smart and incredibly dedicated to making sure the capital markets work for American workers in all their as workers as investors and as citizens of America. Welcome, Brandon.
0: Well, thank you, John. Thank you for that very uh, generous introduction, and I'm delighted to be with you this morning.
1: So what's your origin story? When you look on your LinkedIn profile, it is the shortest LinkedIn profile I think I've ever seen. It shows you graduated from University of California, Berkeley, with a BA in economics, and then with a law degree. And then 26 straight years at the AFL-CIO, largely in its office of investment. Few people have such a focused career nowadays. Did you always know you want to work for a labor union? How did you choose this? How did you become the person you are today?
0: I think it's Generation X quality to be both humble in describing oneself as well as in one's career ambitions it's probably if anything a lack of career ambition that has uh, kept me doing what i keep doing today but more importantly i think working for the labor movement is uh, the calling it was my uh, my dream job coming out of college and so uh, of course having achieved it at my dream job at such a tender age there was nowhere nowhere further to go i'll keep doing it as long as the the Labor movement will have me, so I'm, I'm honored to, to represent working people in the capital markets, and we'll see what the future brings.
1: Why was it your dream job? I mean, did you grow up in a labor household? Did you always know you wanted to work for a labor union? My father,
0: he was a uh, a businessman. He, he founded and ran an energy consulting company. Uh, he was trained as a rocket engineer at Stanford and very astute at business. People, family members, friends would seek him out for, for advice, but he wasn't particularly good at investing. <laughs> you know, and I think learning about prudent investment theory was part of what motivated me. Uh, also, my my mother she was a, a flight attendant for Pan Am. She was a union union flight attendant. I keep a copy of her collective bargaining agreement on my desk to remind me of her origin. Her side of the family was always really intrigued by my my interest in working for the AFL CIO. Uh, her father was actually born in France, and her and his father, my grandfather was a, a mine worker who's blacklisted in the French coal mine strikes before World War 1. That's the reason he immigrated to the United States. So, so I guess that that's my origin story, the the synergy between labor and and business, you know, and I think it's it's more important than ever that working people have a voice in the capital market, uh, especially given that, you know, their retirement savings are are their
1: assets and and should speak with their voice. So, let's talk about that because most people, you know, The classic is there's capital, there's labor, and the two are different. And most people don't think about the links between them. Boston University law professor David Weber wrote an interesting book, The Rise of the Working Class Shareholder, talking about the money that labor oversees in various types of pension plans, Taft-Hartley plans, public pension plans, even some single employer plans, and that it's really material to the capital markets, therefore a powerful tool. In fact, he called it labor's last best weapon. So just how large is that pool of capital and how well do you think it's being employed today? In
0: terms of workers' retirement savings, which we have to remember is, you know, the deferred wages of working people that they've set aside to provide for their retirement security and dignity are significant in the United States and and many other countries. Here in the United States, there are about $8 trillion in single employer corporate pension plan assets. Uh, another nine trillion dollars in public employee pension plan and retirement saving asset, uh, and then union members, multi-employer or Taft Hartley pension plans have a little less than another trillion dollars. So altogether, that's about eighteen trillion dollars in retirement savings. Uh, you know, you contrast that with the size of the the U.S. stock markets, which are about forty-six trillion dollars. It is a significant uh, amount of assets that are invested in our economy. It's our goal to d- make sure those investments are directed into productive sustainable ways that will create broad-based prosperity for all working people and and of course provide for our retirement and dignity.
1: So how well is it going?
0: There's always challenges and, and of course the, the big change we've had in the United States is the decline in defined benefit plan coverage and the shift of risk to working people through 401k plans and other d- defined contribution savings. And you know, people often look at pension plans and they say, well, they're, they're very expensive or, you know, they have underfunding. But what people don't consider is the retirement savings crisis we have in the defined contribution market, the lack of adequate savings that are being put aside through 401k plans. Uh, first of all, half of all Americans have no employer provided retirement savings or even a 401k plan that's a real crisis that we we face in the United States. And so if you think about the retirement saving underfunding that we have on the 401k world, uh, it really is quite shocking. You know, you think about the typical US plan where the standard contribution rate is 3% of total payroll. That contrasts to, you know, other countries that have only defined contribution plans like uh, Australia for example, who recently raised their minimum contribution rate to 12%. So we we really do face a a, a significant challenge. Here in the United States, in terms of providing for uh, workers' retirement savings, for, for the majority of us, Social Security is the only uh, retirement security that we will, we will face. So it, it hasn't been going too well, but we're doing all we can to, to hang on to the retirement security that we can through defined benefit pension plans.
1: I want to play a thought experiment. We've both spent decades trying to improve the capital markets from our own particular viewpoints. Well, we always have to start from what exists, right? And therefore our visions are at least somewhat incremental. If I could create a world in which Brandon Rees were somehow made the retirement capital market czar and allowed to create a totally de novo capital market and retirement system, what would that system look like?
0: Well, it's a thought-provoking question regarding retirement security. You know, as I mentioned at the offset, uh, you know the the benefits of defined benefit pension plans that provide uh, workers with a guaranteed uh, retirement paycheck can't be understated, right, in terms of the economies of scale, the efficiency, reduced costs. Uh, socialization of investment risk, and uh, as well as longevity risk, the the risk that workers will outlive their savings. But, you know, in, in lieu of restoring defined benefit plans, you know, we could also do things to improve our defined contribution system, for example. All the tax benefits of saving for retirement accrue to those who are most able to save. And it's just, it's an upside down system. You know, I would also squeeze costs out of the system for retirement savings and in favor of the low cost, you know, passive index products and and then more importantly, I guess, to, to answer your question, focus on how we can align the long-term investment horizons of retirement savers with their investments. And that's where the real breakdown in our capital markets are, right? We're, as a pension plan trustee, I'm investing over the lifetime of every plan participant beneficiary in the plan. Uh, in many ways, the the the, the ultimate and in, in long-term investments. And yet, you know, as a, as a, at our board of trustees evaluates and receives information from our asset managers on a quarter by quarter basis and uh the ability for for us to align our investment strategies with long-term sustainable investment strategies versus you know the the problem of intermediaries which are constantly being measured on 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 short-term performance both our asset managers as well as the underlying uh CEOs of the portfolio companies that we're investing in both in the public markets and private markets. That's the real challenge that we'd have to to figure out and we seek to address through our capital stewardship program.
1: One issue you've examined over the years that you've spent a lot of time on is executive compensation. We recently had, um, as you saw, and former Teamsters executive compensation expert, Rosella Landis Weaver on this podcast. And let me ask you the same question I asked her. Does it really matter? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, executive compensation is a very small part of a company's expenses. So how does executive compensation affect the companies, the capital markets, and the economy?
0: And this really speaks to the intertemporal challenges of our capital markets and investing and and for the long-term versus the short-termism that we're encumbered with. So um, last year, CEOs of S and P 500 companies made 18.3 million dollars in total compensation. That's you know a life changing amount of pay for just one year. If I was if I was a CEO of an S and P 500 company, I probably only work six months before uh, retiring to a beach somewhere.
1: Just uh, to drop, that's 18.3 million each on, on average. average.
0: That's right, That's the average amount of compensation. And why does it matter? It matters, first of all, because it's the incentive structure that guides executive decision making. whether I'm going to make a long-term investment in my organization, invest in creating good jobs and recruiting a you know a skilled workforce who might take many years to to attract and, and develop, or if I'm going to take a short-term approach where I can I can lay a bunch of people off. Uh, temporarily goose earnings and therefore get this this tremendous life-changing payday. Even if in, in my hearts of hearts, I know the decision I'm making is not in the best interest of the company, it's really hard to ignore that payday, right? Executives are gonna do what we pay them to do. That's the first reason why, you know, executive compensation matters, because it's that incentive structure that's guiding CEO decision making. The other reason it matters, of course, is this is a risk factor in and of itself, right? Extremely high levels of compensation can, if the incentives are wrong, reward excessive risk taking, which can can in its worst form, of course, include corporate wrongdoings such as accounting fraud. And that was the lesson of the, the Enron and WorldCom era that executive incentives matter. So I think it, it absolutely matters as an investor. Within a, within a company, as well as an investor broadly in our economy, right? If we're incentivizing the wrong things and overpaying to do it, well, that's a problem. That's a problem for the retirement security of, of the people who, who I represent in the capital markets.
1: So you've looked at CEO compensation from all angles for a quarter of a century. I always get the feeling that when we try to make reforms, the unintended consequences come back and bite us. 162M is a famous example of that. 162M refers to the section of the IRS code that said, okay, if you can make it performance based, then it's tax deductible above a million dollars. And while that was supposed to reform, what it did was it made everyone have stock based compensation that went way up from, you know, a million dollars to, as you say, an average of 18.3. That said, I am sure you have thought about some specific reforms you would like to, to, to make to the system. So give me two or three specific reforms you think would have the most salutary impact.
0: The first thing is we we have to move away from this myth of of pay for performance, right? That too many proxy voters, particularly large institutional investors, say, "Well, I don't care about quantum or magnitude of pay; I just care about pay for performance." But the the structure of that compensation is often leading to excessive uh, risk taking, asymmetric risk structures. This is highlighted the most by stock option compensation, which is fallen out of favor, but still widely used. Stock options provide all the benefit of share price increases, none of the risk of share price decline. Uh, if you look at how they're, they're, they're value, the Black-Scholes uh, option pricing model actually uses volatility as a measure of the valuableness of the options, more likely they would be exercised. Why would you pay an executive in, in a currency that is more valuable if the stock price is more volatile, when most investors are are risk adverse, is beyond me. So that would be the first thing I do: is I get rid of any asymmetric incentive structures and compensation. Instead, I try to tie it to the individual performance of executives. Right? You know, we can't measure individual CEO productivity through stock prices or even even corporate earnings. A company is a team. It's a collaboration between all employees and other stakeholders in the organization. Uh, And the team leader should be focused on supporting and and enhancing that team's productivity. And so we need to be looking at things like, you know, is the company investing in its workforce? And then lastly, we have to address the quantum of pay issue, right? Last year, the S&P 500's average CEO to worker pay ratio was 324 to 1 you know, these high pay ratios, you send a dispiriting message to the rest of the workforce that it's a winner take all system in which the, you know, the CEO reaps the lion shares of pay and everyone else's contribution is is not, not, not equally valued. And so I think that that's something that compensation committees need to do when setting CEO pay, think about, well, how does this pay level, this quantum of pay that we're assigning to the CEO uh, fit into our own overall compensation philosophy? And how we pay the rest of the workforce, and I don't care if you're the, you know, next five named executive officers of the company, or you're the median employee on the on the shop floor. Uh, how your CEO is compensated relative to to the rest of the organization's pay structure is important. You know, one of the the problems with compensation committees standard operating procedures is they look at well, what's the peer group do, right? What's our what's the peers at, at other companies pay their CEO, and you know, and that's purported to be market information that is objective and, and makes it easier for for the compensation committee to, to set pay levels. Uh, the problem is that the use of peer groups creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. All CEOs are above average. Uh, some companies consciously target above their peer group. Other companies will pick larger, more successful companies, aspirational peers, so to speak, where CEO pay is higher. Mathematically, pay has to rise. Even if you are diligent in setting your own peer group as honestly and forthrightly as possible, mathematically, it has to rise because someone else is, didn't get their peer group right. So uh, that's what's leading to pay inflation, in my view, in this country, you know, and why I think it's of equal consideration that the company, the board of directors, consider how it, how's the CEO's pay fit into their own organizational structure?
1: So executive compensation has been contentious for generations now. There is another issue which has become more contentious recently, which is proxy voting. And that is when the owners of a company vote on issues such as the election of directors or executive compensation, or usually on a suggestion for a shareholder of how a company should account for climate change or diversity or whatever. The AFL-CIO has been a leader in what some um, Republican elected officials have called wokeism, which they describe as perverting the capital markets to political ends at the expense of investment returns. I expect you have a different, uh, explanation of that and some feelings about it. So talk to me about it.
0: Last month, the department of labor under the Biden administration issued uh, a new ESG rule for private sector pension plans, which pension plans, the labor movement, uh, as well as asset managers. Had been, had been seeking, and it was in response to the previous administration's re- at, reinterpretation of, of, of ERISA, which is the body law that governs private sector pension plans, uh, which have all is always taken the position, going back to the 1980s, that proxy votes are plan assets and therefore must be stewarded uh, by plan fiduciaries in the best interests of plan participants and beneficiaries. Uh, the right to vote is valuable uh and in casting those votes in the interest of of, of the plan and, and the plan participants is is uh is a fiduciary duty. What was remarkable was under this was uh former Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia Jr. uh proposed uh a regulation interpreting this longstanding duty to vote proxies in a way that actually discouraged pension plans from voting proxies. Uh that it was undemocrat an undemocratic effort. To silence workers' voices as retirement savers by telling pension plans that if they were going to vote, they had to be subject they had to to uh, document their voting and the and the cost benefit analysis for voting beyond any other investment decision uh, and created safe harbors that originally proposed always voting with corporate management, that CEOs were always right and uh, and that you could just always vote with corporate management. Well, I wonder whose idea that was. Could it could it perhaps have perhaps been the business roundtable that represents corporate CEOs, but as as you know, as, as any proxy voter knows, you know management isn't right all the time, and you have to have standards of good corporate governance in, in order to encourage uh, you know private ordering to adopt best practices. So, so that was one of the proposals that didn't even make it through the final wash. Right, the final proposed rule, final rule that the Trump administration adopted, said that well, you could you could decide some issues. You know, we're not you know pecuniary to a pension plan's interest and therefore you didn't have to vote for example you could say i am not i am not going to vote on ESG shareholder resolution uh, or on a, another safe harbor was that if a pension plan didn't hold a certain percentage of assets in a particular company they could choose not to vote for that reason uh, and of course for for given the the duty to diversify plan assets that would have meant that you you, again, you know, would would not need to vote. And so this new Biden rule by uh, our new labor secretary, Marty Walsh, clarifies and restores the Department of Labor's longstanding interpretation that proxy votes should be cast uh, where it's in the economic best interest of the plan, and restores this faith in in shareholder democracy. Yeah, I think it's it's an incredibly important issue. I think underappreciated by many members of you know the investing public who rely on either their pension plan or the mutual funds they invest in to vote uh, on their behalf and in their best interest. Uh, but it's incredibly, cr- incredibly important to the functioning of our corporate governance system, right?
1: Yeah, one of the great ironies there, by the way, is that the, uh, the Department of Labor's original 1980s uh, mm-hmm. votes as a planned asset and therefore an obligation to vote it was under Ronald Reagan, who I don't think anyone uh, accuses of, of being some sort of left-wing woke president. But there you have it. Why do you think 2022 has been the year of the anti-ESG backlash?
0: I think it was the engine number one proxy fight uh, at ExxonMobil last year in which direct shareholders elected directors who uh, took a more sustainable approach to, to climate change issues um, and the fact that management lost that proxy vote. It really alarmed certain quarters of, of the CEO community and it, re- and it represents an effort to dial back corporate governance and proxy voting to a time uh, when shareholders were passive and deferential to to corporate management. but that's not that's not representative of the of of the capital markets today in which uh, which people, even if you're a, an index passive investor, you are still, expected to be an active owner many many of the large index providers are active owners in terms of engaging with company on ESG issues and 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 voting voting contrary to management when it's in the best interests of their client you know one of the things that's fascinating about this whole ESG debate is a lot of the debate is around screening of investments or the use of ESG criteria as a alpha strategy for selecting portfolio companies but I think the, the political opposition is really, really coming from, from the CEO class in this country who uh, don't like the notion of shareholders providing that accountability mechanism and voting independently of management's recommendations uh, when it's in the best interest of shareholders to do so.
1: You mentioned the CEO class. Let me, let me ask you a different question about that. that it, it, you mentioned in regards to the politics of, quote, anti-woke, end quote. And yet one interesting result of that and the culture wars in general is is almost a frame of the nearly 100-year-old alignment of big business and the Republican Party that's existed since opposition to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in the 30s. Let me give, give you an example. Some of that fraying has come about because business has been responsive to workers, in fact. So, for instance, Disney um, criticizing the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida results in Governor DeSantis attacking Disney. Um, Eli Lilly has taken on the anti-abortion, excuse me, the anti-choice and anti-contraceptive care issues in Indiana, saying they're going to have to grow outside of their home state, trying to be a little optimistic for workers. Do you think that as polarized as America may be at this moment, longer term, there's an opportunity for a new era where um, senior management, the CEO class, as you say, is aware of workers' needs and desires, and there's a new chance for worker corporate cooperation, or at least less polarization, the partial realignment.
0: I certainly hope so. Um, you know, I'm I'm struck by the difference in uh, labor relations and in European countries to the United States, where you know employees are seen as partners and not even not even as an asset, right? I mean, U.S. companies are very fond of saying you know their greatest asset are their employees, and that's certainly true. But seeing employees as something that to be invested in and and as full partners and in in the organization, which we believe is best realized through, you know, the the freedom of working people to come together to form trade unions and and to negotiate. Is my my hope that we'll see a thawing in, in the the adversarial approach that many uh, U.S. companies, you know, most prominently today, Amazon and Starbucks, uh, in fighting uh, efforts by by their employees to to form unions. Uh, and I, I really think it it's not in the best interest of those companies or their shareholders that it really comes down to the imperial CEO feeling challenged by working people uh, coming together in this way. I hope that um, you know we' we'll start to evolve and, and grow grow away from that and, and and that us companies will increasingly treat their workforces as as partners and and creating value and not see see it through a
1: adversarial lens. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax?
0: I um, Yeah, I'm a fan of uh, jazz and classical music. I particularly enjoy uh, live radio, you know, where it's curated by a, a real person to be um, important. I'm also a fan of, uh, in my uh, downtime, play a historic uh, World War II simulation game called Hearts of Iron, which uh, basically involves me staring at maps <laughs> on my laptop. Uh, which I, uh, I find very relaxing and, and, you know, perhaps it's my, my interest in history and is, you know, what finds that to be something that would, would be something that is relaxing versus something that
1: would probably give other people headaches. What are you reading right now? Is it a, a history of World War II or? Oh, uh, no,
0: I've already yeah, exhausted my interest in that genre. Um. You know, I was I was as I mentioned when we were talking before. I was in uh, in Barcelona for the our committee for workers' capital conference, as well as the uh, UN Principles on Responsible Investment conference. Uh, I'm rereading uh, George Orwell's "Homage to Catalonia," which I probably haven't read since I was a teenager.
1: If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be?
0: Again, my mother she was a flight attendant for Pan Am, and we had uh, flight benefits. It really, really. Um, you know, opened up my my eyes to the you know to the rest of the world, and you know it's yeah you know, I regret not having had that opportunity to travel with my own children. So I'm looking forward to you know taking them to Europe hopefully next year. Now that we've emerged from this you know COVID pandemic, my usual vacation is uh, we go to uh, the beach and the Outer Banks each each summer, uh, which is more restorative than uh, than perhaps traveling for uh, for cultural enrichment is. But um, so um, I'm always a big fan of vacation. <laughs> restoring, restoring your your commitment to your work, you know, is is critical. And Americans are, I think, one of the most overworked uh, people in the industrialized world. And so, uh, so if you're listening to this and you haven't used up all your vacation, please uh, please plan to do so, or make that your your uh, New Year's wish for 2023. You'll be a productive, more productive worker if you take full advantage of your vacation. Uh, and if you're an employer that doesn't offer vacation. Uh, you're doing your, not just your employees a disservice, you're doing your shareholders a disservice as well.
1: No one's ever taken that vacation question and turned it into a soup in quite such a <laughs> successful way. Last question, Brandon. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would it be? The thing that strikes me
0: about humanity is, you know, how social we are, right? We depend on each other to, to take care of our basic needs uh you know from the grocery store to the pickup of the trash and and our own our own corresponding contribution to uh human society through our own effort right is so defined and you know through our work and uh you know i would just just let people know just to reflect you know of of all the you know other animals that are out there i think we're probably closest to a hive of bees in terms of our dependency on each other and therefore we should you know treat each other with respect and fairness and, and remember, you know, we're all in it together and, uh, and therefore, you know, we should be a little bit more humble in our own interactions with each other and, uh, and be willing to be willing to share and, and uphold the principles of egalitarianism and, and fairness in, in everything we
1: do. Thanks. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Brandon Rees, Deputy Director of Corporations and Capital Markets for the afl um, as you've heard, a uh, distinct and productive voice for labor in the United States. And uh, thanks very much, Brandon, for being on. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Networks Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik executive producer it is available from apple spotify google and wherever you get your podcasts please remember to subscribe leave us a review follow us on social media thanks much for listening